So we're in Matthew 13, um, and we're looking at uh, these kingdom parables. We've been here for a while. I'm going to read verses 30 through 35 of Matthew 13 in just a minute. If you want to get there, kind of put your finger in verse 33. I'm going to thank God for the word. Then we're going to jump into our next kingdom parable. Father, we thank you tonight that we can come on a Wednesday night and enter into your presence and find refreshing, Lord. I thank you for uh, the worship team and these worshipers, Lord God, and we pray that what we offered you was acceptable and it blessed you tonight. Father, I pray that as we worshiped, you prepared our hearts, Lord God, to receive the word tonight. Holy Spirit, open up the eyes of our understanding and open up our hearts and let the, the seed of your word find good soil in our hearts, that it would change us from the inside out. I pray that uh, as we study these things here and understand the, the depth of the kingdom as you illuminate it to us, that we would not forget that we're in this world, but we're not of it. We're just passing through. We are kingdom people because we've been born again and we're a part of the family of God. So help us, God, to live and to spend our time and our energy in ways that will reap eternal rewards and not to just live for today. God, don't let us live for today, Lord. Let us have an eternal perspective, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, that's the world. The world is like, live for today and squeeze all of what you can get out of today. But you know what? We are a different breed because we see that everything we do today is being sown into our future, being sown into our eternity. Amen. What we do today can either make a difference in our eternity or it can be wasted. So, God, help us not to waste days. Matthew 13, starting in verse 33, another kingdom parable. Another parable spoke he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Well, that rhymed right there. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundations of the world. A little two-verse explanation uh, of the point of parables and why Jesus is using them. Just one more time, listen to verse 33. Another parable spoke he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. So this parable here is another kingdom parable, one of the seven. Uh, we're, we're chugging our way through them. We're going to recap them in this message just a little bit. But saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and if you understand what leaven is, it's yeast, and we're going to talk about the nature of that. But this woman, she takes it and she hides it. That's important to notice. Say hide. That's an important caveat there that we need to make sure we don't miss. She hides it in three measures of meal. There's some symbolism in those three measures. But what happened was once the leaven was put in those three measures, the leaven spread through all of them till all of it, till the whole was leavened. So Luke's gospel gives a version of this kingdom parable in Luke 13, 20 and 21. Listen to it. Again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. So Luke basically repeating, uh, you know, this parable 
no nuances there that we need to explore, but just to know that, you know, it appears here and that uh, it's, you know, exactly the same as what's being recorded in Matthew for the most part. This is our fourth kingdom parable. We looked at the sower and the seed. We looked at the wheat and the tares. We looked at the mustard seed. And we're going to recap a little bit of that because it's pertinent to what we're talking about tonight. But now we are in the parable of the leaven. And this parable contrasts and compares the kingdom of God with the ingredient of yeast used in baking bread. Now, you might think of that, this is a little weird. Why are we talking about baking? Why are we talking about yeast? And why are we calling it leaven? How many people call yeast leaven? No, good, no weirdos out there. But uh, not a word that we use, but we know what it means. Now, remember, parables took common, ordinary things that people could easily relate to and use them, that common thing, to illustrate a deeper spiritual meaning, to communicate principles, to, in this sense, uh, give a comparison, a metaphor as to what the kingdom of God is like. In this case, everybody knew about bread, and everybody knew about how, you know, you bake bread. In that day, I mean, bread was just as incredible as it is now. I don't know if they sliced it back then, but we have sliced bread. So that's just amazing that, you know, some people are like, oh, yeah, sliced bread. That's a blessing. But the people knew as soon as he talked about leaven, they knew exactly what he was talking about. As soon as he's talking about baking bread, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And so they instantly relate to it. Now, yeast has an interesting nature. Uh, leaven and yeast are the same thing. We're more comfortable with yeast. Yeast has an interesting nature in that yeast will relentlessly work its way through whatever it's put into until it overtakes it. Understand that. How many people bake in here? How many people use yeast? Boy, you people buy all your bread from the store, you're missing out. So we understand the nature of this for the most part. In that day, they were much more aware of it, uh, a little less for us. So understand when you put the the yeast in the dough, it's going to spread through it till it spreads through all of the dough. That's the nature of it. And realize we're seeing this used as something that's a comparison here. So we need to understand the nature of it. I think the spiritual implications of that are pretty obvious when you think about it. When you put something into something and it spreads all the way through it and permeates the whole thing, there could be a lot of spiritual implications there. Jesus uses the nature of yeast. And if you look in Scripture, when you hear that word yeast or leaven particularly, it's always seen as a type of sin. So Jesus uses the idea of yeast or leaven to show that it is a type of sin, implying that when sin is introduced, even in a small amount or in a hidden amount, it's going to permeate through the whole thing. So there's the spiritual application there. And we're going to look at this here and, and understand that we're not just talking about baking bread. We're talking about spiritual things here. You know, uh, it describes how the body of Christ is hurt when leaven spreads through it. The introduction of sin within the ranks of the church, uh, the introduction of sin through people who have bad character or bad morals or bad intentions will somehow affect the whole body. Now, doesn't the enemy like to tell us when we sin, it, it, it doesn't do anything, you know, nobody's hurt by it. 
Have you ever heard that lie before? Has the enemy ever told you, no one's going to know. It's not going to hurt your family. It's not going to hurt your spouse. It's not going to hurt the church. But the truth is that whenever we sin because we're part of a body, there's a ripple effect that goes through everything close to us. I don't sin as a man and it, and it doesn't, you know, not impact my wife, not impact my children. You know, understand, when we sin, it has a ripple effect. And so this yeast principle here, this, this illustration that we're seeing that, you know, yeast being a type of sin and sin spreads through uh, everything it touches is very important for us to understand. And Jesus said this about leaven in Mark 8, 15. Then he charged them saying, take heed, be aware or beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Do you see that? Jesus, again, using this term, leaven, to, you know, suggest the idea of sin. And he says, beware of the leaven or the sin of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven or the sin, you know, and, and he could list any leader in here, but he says Herod because he wants the people to know that these two groups have a way of thinking, a, a way of doing things that like sin, if you allow it to be put in you, will spread through you. Think about how the Pharisees, everything they touched with their pompous religiosity, everything they touched, they turned, you know, from something that could be a spiritual blessing into a burden, into a curse, into a works-based thing where you'd have to measure each other against one another. What a mess these guys did. And Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. These are bold statements. These are, you know, these are, uh, you know, Jesus is really shaking the boat here when he says things like that. You know, he attacks the power structure of the day and the leadership of the day. He talks to the, notice, he says the Pharisees, that's the spiritual leadership. He goes right at it. He, Herod, that's kind of the political leadership. He goes right at it. Most of us are too timid to go right at anything these days and call it for what it is, sin. And say, beware of the sin of this. Oh, you can't say that. You're judging. You're judgmental. Come on, Wednesday night. You're live tonight. You know, we need to get a little bold sometimes, amen? We need to get the Holy Ghost to rise up in us every once in a while. We need to maybe catch a little bit of righteous indignation. It seems like we, we just go with whatever comes down the pipe. And, you know, whatever they do in politics, whatever they do in the school system, whatever they do with our children, we're just, oh, well, oh, well. Oh, you're saying nope. Well, it's time, to, it's time for a lot of us to stand up and just be like, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And what that is, that's sin, and we're not partaking in it. You can call it anything you want. You can rebrand it. You can rename it. You, you, could, you could say it's this or you could say it's that. But listen to me. When it's sin, it's sin. Jesus goes right at the power structure here. He goes right at the religious power brokers. He goes right at the political uh, you know, power brokers that were perverting the things of God. So Paul also makes a reference to leaven in 1 Corinthians, and he uses it as an example of how sin can rapidly infiltrate and pollute the church if it is not handled correctly. Do you know uh, when there's sin in the church, it has to be handled correctly? All right, let me try on this side. When there's sin in the church, it has to be handled correctly. Now, sometimes the pastor handles it in his office, and you don't know about it. So don't say, why aren't they handling this? 
because it's none of your business how it gets handled, but the fact that it gets handled means it doesn't permeate through the body of Christ. And if it hasn't permeated through the body, then for all you know, it's been handled. But we don't handle everything publicly and messy. We don't embarrass people purposely. We don't expose people. We don't shame people in, in public. The Bible talks about correction, and it comes to a time where if the person won't receive correction in private and they won't receive it from the pastors and the elders, that sometimes public exposure is what the Bible calls for. But we don't start there. So understand, we handle sin when we see it at Full Gospel Center. And sometimes we pull the sword on it, and sometimes we pray about it, sometimes we pull it into the office, but we're always aware of it and handling it. Because if we don't, it will pollute the church. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 6, so you can understand why I'm saying this and why we have a scriptural basis to, to handle things like this. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 6, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as it is not even named among the Gentiles. So, you know, Paul is saying to the Corinthians here, you guys are out sinning the lost people. He's talking to the church that a man has his father's wife. Think about that. So someone took his father's wife to be their wife, and, and Paul's calling him out on it, verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Wow. Paul is saying, look, you guys are more immoral than the world, and I'm correcting it even in my absence. I'm correcting it, and I'm telling you it's bad, but you guys have let it go, and you've even rejoiced in it, and you thought it was pretty slick, and, and I'm judging it here. Why? Because if we don't handle it correctly, it will spread through the body. Immorality will spread like leaven, and it'll leaven the whole lump. I'm part of the lump. You're part of the lump. We don't need sin in our ranks. We need to keep it at bay. And so leaven is a type of sin. It's accurate to assess this. Scripture proves it. In Matthew 13 here, Jesus is using uh, this leaven that's seen as a type of sin. He uses the typology to show how sin can pollute the kingdom of God. This is what this kingdom parable is focusing on here, that, you know, the kingdom is what? It's like leaven. And you understand if you'll introduce sin into the body, it will pollute the body and it will affect the kingdom. Now, what, we, what Paul wants us to know here, I mean, what Matthew wants us to know here as we look at this is that, you know, the kingdom of God is constantly under assault. Do you realize the church from when it was born to this very moment has constantly been under assault by the enemy? The enemy is constantly trying to pollute our doctrine, pervert believers, to get us to walk away from a sound Christology, to believe that Jesus is anything and everything but who he said he was, and constantly, and we see churches falling. You know, they don't believe that the scripture is inerrant anymore. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There are denominations who have said, you know what, you know, these, these stories in here are just stories. 
One time a person was telling me they, they went to church and the preacher stood up at the pulpit and he was preaching through some Old Testament story and he says, these things probably didn't really happen. They're just stories. I want to tell you something. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe everything that's between the covers of this book. I believe it all. I can't explain it all. I don't know all about it. You know, well, how did Noah's Ark work and how did they fit? Do you really believe that God took, you know, two by, I really believe two by two they went into the ark and that they stood in there and God preserved them. I really believe everything that's in here. I believe the walls fell down at Jericho, amen. I believe all of that stuff. And they try, they try to attack that. Why? Because the enemy's behind it. He's always attacking the church. He's always trying to introduce sin. He's always trying to pollute doctrine. The church has been under constant assault from its inception. But the fact that Jesus has it in the palm of his hands and he protects it and we're covered by the blood of the lamb is the only reason why we're still here today with an accurate Bible, with a Holy Ghost that's moving in this place. The only reason is because God has taken the church and, and he protects and preserves it. And we see all these kingdom parables, whether the enemy is attacking the, the seed because it was sown in poor soil, or he's sowing tares secretly in the night, or he's quietly infiltrating the kingdom, uh, and he's dwelling within kingdom places. There's one thing I didn't cover when I taught on the kingdom parable of the mustard seed, and that was, do you remember what the mustard seed grew into when it came to maturity? Tell me what it grew into. A big tree. Okay. Call it out when you know it. Tree. So it grew into a tree, and then what happened? The birds of the air nested in that tree. Do you remember that? Well, in Scripture, there are more typology. The birds of the air always describe evil spirits. And the tree being the kingdom of God, the, the parable of the mustard seed is showing us that as the kingdom grows, the enemy likes to try and infiltrate it and hang out in it and dwell in it. Why? So he can sow tears and sow trouble and sow, you know, bad doctrine. And so that's what that's all about there. You might think, oh, it was a tree and the birdies came to, ooh, it's so nice. But it's not nice. What that kingdom parable is telling us there again, the, the fowls of the air, the birds of the air, those are, in Scripture, you'll see the, the typology of them, they're demonic spirits. So, you know, the devil likes to come to church. He said, well, last week he was sitting next to me. No. But the devil likes to hang out in religious circles. He likes to infiltrate leadership. He puts wolves among the sheep. He sows tares and he tries to spark rebellions and make church splits and pervert doctrine. And if we don't realize that this is happening and we're just thinking, oh, the cute birdie's in the tree, we're not going to be very effective at resisting the enemy. So these kingdom parables, every one of them is showing how the kingdom of God is under assault. And uh, we see leaven here, this type of sin being introduced to the body. Now, let's take a look at this. How does sin find its way into the church? You think the church is the body of Christ. It's, it's holy. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Jesus is the head of it. How in the world does sin find its way into the church? Now, we have to face this fact that even though we're born again, that we love Jesus with all our hearts, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, our flesh often gets the best of us and we sin. Does anybody disagree with anything I just said? 
born again, we love Jesus, full of the Holy Ghost, yet our flesh gets us and we sin sometimes. And by sometimes, I mean a lot. Every day. Sometimes it's better to wake up late. You'll, you'll, you're, you know, like if I got up at 9 and have three or four sins already, I should wake up at 11. But, I mean, we, we and you say, well, what, what kind of sins? You know, pride, selfishness, anger, all of these things in our flesh. So we got to face the fact that, you know, we're still sinners. Listen to 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word or the truth is not in us. So we've got to come to terms with this fact. We are redeemed and we are uh, in Christ under the blood of the lamb. Positionally, God sees us as sinless and perfect and we're saved, but our flesh still sins. And so there's a duplicity in all of us. So how does sin get in the church? Well, when we open the doors, we come in. That's it. We bring it in with us because we struggle with it. But the good news is greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen. He's able. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us. But we can't go around saying, I'm sinless. I'm perfect. Haven't, you know, uh, you know I, uh, I haven't sinned in 15 years. <laughs> you just sin now, you liar. You... So how does sin get in the church? We're sinners saved by grace, and we still struggle with sin. So because of this, sin works its way into the church, and that affects the kingdom of God. So how does sin get into church doctrine, into leaders, into the leadership structure of church? How does it get into the focus or the purpose of local churches? There are some churches that their whole entire purpose is not the purpose listed for the church in Scripture. The purpose of the church is to preach the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission, to make converts, to water baptize them, to disciple them, and to praise God and be the light of God in this dark world. That's the mission of the church right there. It's not, but yeah, we have some churches there, you know, they're about social justice or they're about the environment or they're about this cause or that cause or you know, were going to build houses for, uh, that's all well and good, but that's not the focus of the church. And anytime we make the focus of the church something other than what Jesus said the focus of the church should be, we've polluted our doctrine. And the pews are going to fill up with people who are not saved, but they just want to do good works. Well, I'm preaching Wednesday night. So the answer is how does sin get into doctrine? How does it get into leaders? How does it get into leadership structures? There are entire churches where the leadership structure is polluted. Why? Because it's not even God-ordained. They have boards and they have meetings and they vote and they pick popular people or rich people or the most vocal people. And God never called them to leadership, but they're installed and they have titles. And what hope do you think a church like that has of doing the will of God and having a move of the Spirit? So the answer is twofold. How does it get in? Number one, as I said, we bring it in with all the uncrucified flesh we have. And number two, the devil sows it in there like tares among us. Now, how does that relate to this parable here? Listen, it says, we're talking about leaven. It said, which the woman, say woman, took and hid in three measures of meal. 
So the woman here is a type of Satan. She's representative of the devil. What does the devil do? He takes this leaven, which is sin, and he secretly sows it into the three measures of meal. So I want you to get this here. You know, you might think, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, how does it get in there and, and who puts it there? Well, you know, we bring it with us, but the enemy is quick to sow it. And here in this case, that's exactly what Jesus is warning us, that somebody took and hid leaven, hid sin in the three measures of meal. Now, the devil is a liar. We know that. Amen. He's a deceiver. It's his nature to trick and to snare us all day long. Anytime the enemy is talking, he's not telling the truth. And even if it sounds like he's telling the truth, he will mix mostly truth with a little bit of a lie. That's his M.O. That's how he's operated since he interacted with Adam and Eve in the garden. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But he just can't tell the truth because by his very nature, he's a liar. So when, even if he takes a little bit of truth, he mixes in a little lie with it. Oh, Jesus will save you from your sins, but you got to do good works and do this and do and add a whole bunch of but onto the truth. So we understand the nature of the enemy. We understand how sin infiltrates the church and affects the kingdom. But think about this. If the enemy's out there trying to trick us, trying to snare us, trying to deceive us, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, including myself, are, are easily deceived by our own fallen nature and slick people. How, how many have ever been tricked before by a slick person? Amen. Let me raise two hands. Come on, you watched the late night infomercial and you thought, ah, this is stupid. Then you watch it five minutes later, you're taking down the number. You're going <laughs> to. Well, I, I should. No, six month supply is not enough. I should get the lifetime supply. <laughs> Automatic delivery. Yeah, I'll save three bucks. We get fooled by slick people. How many have ever been in a dating relationship and, and you got fooled? Now, now you're just lying. You got fooled. You thought, oh, this person's terrific, great, wonderful, my soulmate, a blessing from heaven, an angel dropped down by, it's the devil, the devil. I'm, I'm dating the devil. Six months later. Slick people, religious merchandisers, pastors, preachers, people who call themselves Christians, and they're wolves in sheep clothing. And we get tricked by them, whether we like to admit it in church or not. We get tricked by them, and we get deceived by our own heart sometimes. We get tricked by our own flesh sometimes. And I'm saying all this to say this. If we can't deal with our own, you know, fallen nature or the slick people that, you know, we're surrounded with, how in the world do we hope to avoid being demonically deceived? Think about that. Listen, the devil is a lot smarter than any of us here. He's not some guy in a red leotard with a pitchfork. He was Lucifer, God's most highly ranked angel. He was the leader of worship in heaven. He knows how to use music. He knows how to use words. He knows how to use all kinds of crafty deception and to stir up emotions. And he's a lot slicker than any of us. So if we can't deal with our own fallen nature, we can't deal with people when they're deceptive, how in the world do we hope to avoid being deceived by the devil? Well, I'm going to give you three ways to avoid demonic deception. Number one is this. 
Pay attention to who you associate with. Number one, we tell it to our young people. You, you watch who your friends are. If you have children and they become teenagers and as they get older, you, as a parent, you are always watching their friends. If you're not, you're a fool. Because listen to me, you, those friends will affect them and at certain moments in their life, they'll trust them more than they trust you. Uh, come on, Wednesday night. And so it's the same thing for us. If we want to avoid deception, if we want to avoid being deceived by the devil, we've got to pay attention to who we associate with. 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. There are some people who we need to get away from in life. They could be friends from school, they could be relatives, they could be neighbors, they could be people, you know, we grew up with, that we have soul ties with, that we don't want to get rid of, but they're destroying our God potential because they are not leading us towards Christ, they're leading us back toward the flesh. You got to look at the friends you have. Are they pursuing God? Are they filled with the Holy Spirit? Do they desire, you know, to please God? What's the, now, I know all of us have friends that, you know, they're, they're kind of like missionary friends. We're trying to get them saved, amen? But your core, the people around you, they need to be solid, godly people. And if they're not, they're going to say things and do things and stir up emotions in you that will deceive you at times. You'll learn their behavior. You know, it's a, it's a lot harder uh, to pull someone uh, up than it is to pull down. Ray, come up here for a second. Come on, move, move it like it's a football play. Come on, come on. Come on, buddy, don't be scared. So if I want to bring, if I want to pull Ray up and I want to, you know, give me your hands, buddy, and I want to pull you up, just, just. Uh, all right, now, Ray, you, you pull me down. Much easier. Easy. So understand, for me to, me to have to pull him up, now, now we're dancing, now is, is going to be really hard. So that's the way it is with your friends. You, I'm going to pull them up. I'm going to lift them up. And that's good. And we need to pray about it. We need to be very careful because when they start tugging on us, they're going to easily pull us down. Go ahead, buddy. And it's a lot harder... Anytime people start pulling us down, look, if you're drowning, the last thing you need is people hanging on you. We got to be careful who we associate with. Some of those people are pulling us down. And we got to let them go, and we got to pray for them, and we got to, you know, pray for God to touch them, but we need to not let them drag us down. Number two, the second way to avoid demonic deception is this, to pay attention to what you're sowing. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. There again, we're talking about deception. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. We have to pay attention to what we are sowing. Are we sowing to the spirit or are we sowing to the flesh? Now, I know those are big, you know, lofty paradigms there that we think, I'm sowing to the flesh, I'm sowing to the spirit, you know, but we, we got to break it down to the nitty-gritty. You know, our, our flesh, 
the, the works of the flesh, you know, the, the lust and anger and pride. And we have to think, you know, do we spend a lot of time dealing with those things, lusting after things, be, outfits of, of outbreaks of anger? Do we explode all the time? You see, uh, do we have pride? Do we get offended at everything, at everybody? We can't let anything go. Maybe you're saying, well, none of that applies to me. Well, then praise God. There's a good chance, you know, you're sowing more to the spirit than you are to the flesh. But we've got to evaluate, where am I spending my time and my energy? The fact that you're here tonight on a Wednesday night, sitting in the house of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, drinking in the word, shows me you're making good choices. There's a lot of people who could be here that are not here, that are you know, I don't know what they're doing, but this is the better place to be. Amen. And I'm not just saying that because I have to come and I don't want to be lonely. <laughs> this is the better place to be. So pay attention to what you're sowing. You know, if you're in the word, if you're in prayer, if you're, if you're fighting against sin and not giving yourself over to it, if every day you're getting a little bit closer to Jesus, and even when you get knocked down, you get back up and you get a little closer, notice what you're sowing. Why? Because if you sow to the flesh, you're going to be in the flesh. And when you're in the flesh, you're so easily deceived. When I'm angry, I'll believe all kinds of lies. The enemy will tell me, you, you should do this and you should do that and give him a piece of your mind and you shouldn't have to take that. But if I'm in the spirit, all of a sudden I, I'm, not, I'm not at that place. I'm like, well, let's give him some grace. Let's pray for him. Let's just let that go. See, it's what we're sowing. So pay attention to the people you associate. Pay attention to what you're sowing. And number three, to avoid demonic deception, pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know why a lot of us get in trouble at times in life? Because we're in, the, we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Let me say that again. We get into trouble when we're at the wrong place at the wrong time. You see, if you, if you and I will let the Holy Spirit lead us, we're going to be in the right place at the right time. He, he's, the Holy Spirit, I've been walking with the Lord since I'm 14 years old. Praise God, he's kept me, never backslide, never took a detour, been walking with him. And I got to tell you, he's never led me to a wrong place, not one time ever. Not one time. Oh, you know, Holy Spirit, you led me here. This, is, this has been a disaster. There has a, No, I'm not saying every place he led me was easy, but it was never a wrong place. You know when we wind up in wrong places? When we follow our flesh. The flesh always bring us to the wrong place. And you know, we've got to be in the right place at the right time. So we've got to pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Matthew 24, 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Did you hear that? You hear that scripture saying what? There's going to be false Christ, false prophets, great signs and wonders, all false stuff in the last days, in the terminal generation, that if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Do you see how powerful the deceptive nature of the enemy is? God is basically telling us if we allow the Holy Spirit to direct our steps, we won't be deceived. Why? Because it's not possible to be in the spirit and to be deceived by the enemy. It says, if it were possible, it's not possible because we're in Christ. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And as he leads us and guides us, we're not going to be deceived. 
But the deception out there is so powerful that the multitudes are going to believe it. Do you know when the Antichrist comes, the multitudes are going to accept him like he is the Savior? And that's exactly the intention. But the elect, the righteous, those of us who are in Christ and walk in the Spirit, we won't be deceived. It's impossible because the Holy Spirit will lead us and reveal to us truth. So uh, we want to avoid demonic deception, walk in the Spirit, watch what you're sowing, and watch who you're hanging out with. Some of us need to jettison some of the things that are dragging us down. And by things, I mean people. So number three here, I want you to notice in this parable that we mentioned before, and I'll mention it again, the leaven was hid. What the woman did was effective uh, because she did it secretly. You know, when something's done openly or someone tells you they're going to do something, if someone tells you, I'm going to come to your house at night and steal all your money, what would you do? Watch TV real late and fall asleep on the couch? No, you'd be ready for the thief if the thief told you when they were going to come, right? The reason that what the woman did was so highly effective, uh, the reason what the enemy did was so catastrophic is because he did it secretly and it, it slipped in there and nobody noticed it. So we can conclude uh, in giving an explanation of this parable that the woman is the devil, the secret introduction of leaven is sin, and it's, it's done in an attempt to pollute the true understanding of the church. Now, let me explain to you the three measures of meal. Most Bible teachers believe that the three measures of meal represent the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what does the enemy do? It introduces sin that perverts the people's view of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that the world still doesn't know who Jesus is? Do you realize that the world and some of the church doesn't know the heart of the Father? Do you realize that, you know, our world and a lot of the church doesn't understand the function of the Holy Spirit? Why is that? Because the enemy has done his best to pollute doctrine and to pollute uh, the understanding of the church and of the world so that none of us would understand the true nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a powerful thing to understand here that the enemy has been doing the same thing since he was in the garden. What he's been doing is attacking the true nature and the true intentions of the Godhead. And that's what this parable is showing here, that he's still attacking the true nature and the true intentions of the Godhead. Look what he did in the garden. He comes to Eve and, and he said, why, why can't you eat that? Well, God said, we'll die. You won't die. Did God say that you would die? And then, he, and then when, you know, he sows that seed, what, that a little unsurety or not quite sure, then he says, basically, God's just trying to hold you back. He doesn't want you to know the difference between good and evil. What does the devil do? He lies about the intention and the nature of God. And, and somehow Eve was deceived, and she figured, yeah, you know what, I want to I be like God. I, I want to know the difference between good and evil. I, I don't want to be obedient. I want to eat this. 
the woman sowed the seed and, it, and, and uh, the leaven comes in and it pollutes the understanding of who the Godhead is. And it's been the same since the garden. You won't die. God's holding you back. He, he doesn't want you to become like him. You know, casting shadows, casting doubt into the nature of who God is. So how does the, how does the enemy attack the persons of the Trinity? I'll show you. God the Father is attacked like this. God's not even there. There's no such thing as God. We have a fancy name for it. It's called atheism. Do you realize a lot of people don't believe that God even exists? And if they don't believe God exists, they won't search for him or try to, you know, get to know him. Why? Because they don't believe it's there. It short circuits the pursuit, the natural pursuit of man to find God. Listen, if you're not seeking after him, there's a good chance you won't find him. And so how does the enemy attack the Godhead? How does he attack the, the Father? He, he tricks people into thinking God's not there. Or he tricks people into thinking God might be there, but he doesn't care about you and he doesn't want to interact with you. We have a fancy name for that. That's called agnostic, being agnostic. An agnostic thinks, well, there could be a God, but there's no way to know, and he certainly doesn't care about us. People believe this. And where did it come from? From leaven sown into doctrine that created a doctrine that was a complete lie. The enemy's fingerprints are all over it. And so he attacks the father like through atheism, through agnosticism. How about this one? God doesn't love you. He's angry at you. How many people out there just think God is always mad at them? I invite people to church, and I see their face. No, the, the ceiling would fall in if I came to church. Why would they say something like that? Because they think God's mad at them. They think God's up there, just an old, crusty codger with a big white beard floating around up there with a scowl on his face. Just looking down at earth. Waiting for us to step out of line so he could whack us. Gotcha. That's not the father heart of God. But the enemy attacks God, and he attacks the image of God with thinking like that. Isaiah 118 says this. The father says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like chrism, they shall be like wool. God's not man. God loves his most precious creation, man. He loves people. He, he doesn't just love good people, smart people, intelligent. No, he loves all people. He loves sinners. But the enemy lies about God. God will never accept you because of what you've done. You're disqualified. That's a lie. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no sin too big for the blood of Jesus. So this is how he lies about the father. How does he lie about the son? Well, he attacks the person of the son like this. Jesus didn't really even exist. Have you heard this out there? If you're paying attention to the secular circles and to those who criticize religion, there's a whole wave of, uh, I call it propaganda, that they're saying the historical Jesus never really existed. Any of you watch TV or... 
well, this is going on out there, and they, they're attacking it, and they're getting people to, it's almost like, you know, they're, they're revisionists, and they rewrite history. Listen, the historians of the day, Tertullian and all the Roman historians and the people, they chronicled the existence of the historical Jesus. If you, listen, you, you'd have to erase and whitewash all of the history of the day to pretend that this man didn't exist, yet they're trying to do it. And they're trying to erase it, and they're being revisionist. And you see them do it with, with things like the Holocaust. You know, there's people who try to deny that the Holocaust took place. With all the evidence, with all the video footage, with all the bones, with all the mass graves, with all, you know, the, 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 the bodies and the rings and the clothes that you find in these, these German places where they, they incinerated the Jews. The world would go around, oh, it didn't even happen. It's overblown. It's a, it's a, it's a, a construct of blah, 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 where they're doing the same thing with Jesus. The historical Jesus didn't even exist. And to anyone who's intellectually honest, that's complete rubbish. But because we live in an ignorant culture, it gets traction. And there are people that believe it. Jesus didn't even exist. He's just, a, you know, this and that. And he comes from Babylonian paganism. And there was a story that was adopted. The nonsense of it all. Number two, how does the enemy attack Jesus? He says, well, Jesus was just a man. Well, Jesus wasn't just a man. Men don't raise the sick and, and raise people from the dead and heal people and cleanse lepers. Men don't have 12 disciples and start a movement that changes the, the world uh, for thousands of years later. He was just a man. No, he wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a prophet like some religious systems say. He was and is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is Lord of all. He has the name above every name. That's Jesus. Oh, he was just a man. Well, I dare you to trust him with your life and to confess him as Savior and Lord and see if he doesn't make himself real to you. If he was just a man. How about this one? Jesus can't save you from your sins. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name under heaven that can bring salvation. No other world leader, no other religious leader, no other religious system ever claimed to, that, that they were God, that they were going to die for someone else's sin. Listen, only Jesus ever died for anyone. You look at these other systems, there's only one name under heaven where which we must be saved. But what does the enemy do? Jesus can't save you. Jesus can't help you. Help yourself. Do, do what you do or just give yourself over to it. Jesus didn't die. Jesus didn't rise on the third day. Jesus is not coming back. These are things that the world says. These are things that the enemy peddles, and the multitudes believe it. They believe Jesus is dead and gone, that the Romans killed him. He was done. He never rose again, and he's not coming back. When you as a Christian tell people that you're waiting for the return of the Lord, they look at you like you are just stone-cold crazy. But that's all right, because they don't understand the hope that we have, because we know that we know that he's alive, because he's changed our lives. How does the devil attack the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? Well, he, he goes like this. He says, the Holy Spirit is just a myth. And John 4.17 answers this, why the world thinks he's just a myth. 
the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, is ne- it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, the world doesn't recognize the Holy Spirit and believes he doesn't exist and he's just a myth because until you get born again, you can't understand the fullness of the Holy Spirit because he's not in you. And so the the world and the religious systems and lost people will deny the existence of the Holy Spirit because they can't see him, feel him, touch him. And even when they see him move, they say, oh, that's just hysteria. That's just, you know, group hysteria. You know, you, you could see the Holy Spirit moving through a congregation. That's the devil. Let's talk about that a little more. How does the enemy attack the third person of the Trinity? Uh, Well, they say that the Holy Spirit is mystical and magical and weird. And if you get into the things of the Holy Spirit, you'll be a weirdo. There are whole portions of the church that say that the Holy Spirit is not for today. That one third of the Trinity has disconnected himself from the body of Christ when there are countless scriptures that say over and over again how the Holy Spirit is the primary one working with the church during the church age. The Father is in heaven. Jesus is seated at his right hand. The Holy Spirit has proceeded from the Father and the Son, and he is working within the believers and the body of Christ and the church, manifesting himself, changing lives, drawing men to salvation. The Holy Spirit is for today. In fact, in the last days, the move of the Spirit is going to be so powerful. Uh, You know, the the visions and the dreams of the young men and the old, all these things, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the last days. Listen to me. A third of the Trinity has not withdrawn himself from the body of Christ. He's active and moving. And the enemy doesn't want you to know that. The threefold application of this parable is as follows. Number one, the devil plans to corrupt the children of the kingdom with sin and compromise, so be careful to live blameless and holy lives. You think, well, Jesus broke the power of sin. It's no big deal. It is a big deal because if we give ourselves over to it, it's going to pollute our thinking and we're going to be more easily deceived and the enemy is going to rob us. So be careful to live blameless and holy lives. You and I on a daily basis should be rooting sin out of us, uh, confessing it, allowing the Holy Spirit to, you know, to get it out and to forgive us and to, and to move forward deeper into the realm of purity. We can harness purity. We can go after purity if we purpose to, to, uh, to develop personal holiness. Positionally, we have holiness in Christ because of the blood, but that's positional holiness. We can develop personal holiness if we reject sin and chase after God. Come on, anybody in with me? Praise God. Number two, the devil plans to pervert sound doctrine, the sound doctrine of Scripture. So be very diligent to know what the Bible actually says. Listen, if you're only coming to church and you're listening to me preach it, God bless you, but you better get in it yourself, amen? And you better make sure that you know what this says. Look, all of us in this room, there, there are no spring chickens here. We got a, we've, we've lived a lot of years. We, we've been given a lot of time. We should know what's in this, this 
book from cover to cover. We should study the Word of God and be students of it. To the point where if I get up here and say something's wrong, a red, a red flag should go off in your spirit. I'm tempted just to preach a wrong sermon and record it just to see who says, Amen. Listen, it has to line up with this. It doesn't matter who's preaching it. If they're on TV, if they got a big church, if they're your favorite pastor, it's amazing to me. I've known pastors that have been teaching heresy for decades, and it is amazing how many of my own people in my own fold think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then all of a sudden they get exposed and their ministry crumbles and and it collapses. Why? Because they've been teaching heresy for decades. But the average person in the pew doesn't have enough discernment and enough Bible in them to, to, to realize that's not right. What you're saying, Mr. TV preacher man, who wants me to send in my tax deductible, non refundable donation to love on my MasterCard, what you're saying doesn't line up with this. And I'm thinking, why don't we spot that more easily? So the enemy wants to pollute doctrine. So we have to be schooled in the word, and we have to have sound doctrine taught to us. Number three, the devil plans to secretly infiltrate every church and to deceive it from within. So allow the Holy Spirit to help you discern the wolves and the false sheep and the false brethren and the false prophets. The, the New Testament warns us over and over again, there will be the false. False teachers, false prophets, false sheep, the bre- people in the church that say, oh, brother, oh, I'm a Christian, and, and their life don't match up with the word, and their tears sown among us. Wow. We need discernment because the enemy's sneaky, and he's hiding things. He's hiding things within the body to try and affect the body, to try and affect the kingdom. We know in the end he'll fail, but you and I need to walk really close with Jesus because these are perilous times. And the Bible talks about a great falling away that will take place before the end comes. Now, I know everybody likes to talk about a great revival that's coming, and I'm believing God for revival, but the Bible never promises a great revival before the end. It promises a great falling away. So know that. It's coming, and there's wolves, and there's tares, and there's leaven, and you and I need to stay close to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you tonight for the word and for these parables and for these warnings that you've given us in scripture. Lord, we know that there's sin and we don't want it within our ranks. We know that there's sin to contend with and we don't want it in our lives. We know there's leaven everywhere. We don't want it in our homes, in our marriages, in our children. So Father, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Allow us to be humble enough to confess our sin so that you can be faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and you can restore us to righteousness. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise tonight.